In that great passage, our Lord, in John chapter 10, we are reminded that you are the good shepherd and that your sheep hear your voice and they follow you. And another, they simply will not follow because they do not recognize the voice of another. But your voice we hear. We hear with ears of faith and eyes of faith we see. And we ask now that as we look to your word together, after we've sung about your word, we've read your word, we've prayed in response to your word, and now as we have extended time to look at your word as we prepare to come to the table that you have ordained for us as your people, as a time of blessing, as a time of praise and encouragement and proclamation, that we would hear your voice in scripture, that our hearts would be prepared to worship you not simply today, but uh, until we meet again and indeed for the end of our days on this earth. To this end, we commit ourselves and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, to the book of 1 Peter. Some of you may be wondering if we're ever going to complete this or if we'll have another eight years as we did in Matthew. Uh, maybe we could cut that in half in four years with First uh, Peter at the rate we're going. But we are going to try to speed things up and, and to keep going, uh, moving through this and complete it hopefully by the end of the year. But one of the difficulties with going through First Peter is that there's so much there. There's, uh, so, it's so dense with the theology and biblical truth. And as you've already been aware, how much Peter is drawing on as a Jew and as a faithful Jew on the Old Testament scriptures and uh, bringing before us how this is fulfilled in Christ, how so much of God's plan that was anticipated to by the old covenant people is now fulfilled and realized in the person of Jesus Christ. And so there's a a great deal here and uh, this section that we'll look at this morning, verses 6 through 10, is no exception to that. And here Peter is going to bring us into one of the complexities that has faced the church, one of the greatest complexities that has faced the church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages, one of the most complex and deep issues of Christian theology, in fact, is laid before us here, and not just here, but already at the beginning of the letter, uh, Peter has introduced us to this truth, namely... God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God's sovereign control over all things and the responsibility of man are are two truths that are laid side by side in Scripture. And yet, to our minds, as limited as they are, there's great profundity here and great complexity. And so the question that's laid before us is, or men is how can God be absolutely sovereign and man be responsible fully and completely at the same time? How can God be absolutely sovereign and man fully responsible at the same time? It was this confusion that Paul dealt with famously in Romans chapter 9. We won't go through that, but when he is explaining the apostasy of the nation and the promises of God and how to connect these things and... He tells us, pulling on the sovereignty of God in the life of Jacob and Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. He says through Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And Paul feels 
the conflict here that this raises in some. And he says, you will say to me, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? His answer to that is on the contrary. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? He ends this section with a God, though willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So Paul's response wasn't to unravel the mystery, but simply to point to God's glory as creator and God's glory as redeemer. And it should be no surprise to us at all that when we're confronted with God, when we're confronted with his word, that we're going to repeatedly come up against mystery. Those things that in our minds are inexplicable, they're fully resolved and harmonious in the mind of God. And it shouldn't surprise us because He is God and we are not. Our faith and our worship does not rest on a complete comprehension of every nuance of His ways, which would be impossible anyway, but to trust in His holy character, His goodness and His wisdom. And that really is the Christian life. Through all of the complexities both of theology and of our own lives, which... We can't untangle all the purposes and the reasonings for why things are the way they are and happen the way that they do. But we do understand the holy character and the goodness and the wisdom of the one who is sovereign over all things. And that's precisely where Paul ended up in Romans chapter 11 after he explains all of these glories and these mysterious workings of God in fulfilling his covenant. He says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He ends for saying, for, by saying, from, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. So this connection between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man is indeed a profound, a complexing, and a mysterious relationship and yet it's true and what we can say with certainty is simply this that God has demonstrated his grace and he has provided mercy and forgiveness in Christ and he has provided this as grace available to all so we read that in Matthew chapter 11 from Jesus's own lips anyone who is weary who is heavy laden who is burdened with their own futility of trying to be good enough the futility of trying to be righteous by religion or any other means, that those who are burdened with the impossibility and the weight of that are free, even beckoned and invited to come to his gentle and loving arms in his heart in whom there is grace and forgiveness and salvation and to be freed from that burden and to be freed from the condemnation of sin and to receive fully the grace of God in him. We also know then by the offer that it is the responsibility of all to respond to that offer. That's the responsibility of all to respond. And so to those who receive Christ in repentant faith and trust, there's forgiveness and reconciliation. For those who reject, there is judgment. Each one is the responsibility of man, and each one is completely under the sovereign hand of God. Completely under the sovereign hand of God. Yet, it's under the sovereign hand of God in such a way... That those who believe, if you believe in Jesus Christ this morning, if you are in fact a regenerate believer who has his life in you, has hope in Christ, you know that you are in that condition only because God has shown mercy to you. 
that God has granted to you something that you did not have on your own or the ability to achieve on your own, namely faith and trust in Him. And so you give all glory to God. You acknowledge that you are in Christ because of the working and the doing and the grace of God in your heart. And yet on the other side, we understand that those who disbelieve have no excuse and have no other blame, no other finger to point other than to your own rebellion and rejection, your own failure to respond to the Word of God. And so that's how it works. What we who know Christ give Him all glory and praise for making us His children, not only by providing a Savior, but granting everything necessary to receive that gift, namely regeneration and faith. And those who are outside of Christ have only themselves to point to. That's a mystery. It's a mystery how that works, and yet both of those things are true. And both of those are realities that are laid before us in this text this morning. And we're going to consider them. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Harmonious truths in in the mind and the working of God, and yet challenging realities for us to comprehend. Now, there's a variety of ways that you could approach this passage, which is true with every passage. But that's the lens, because I think that's one of the things that Paul is or Peter is emphasizing to us and to these original readers as a means of encouragement to them. And a means of encouragement to them in the light of their suffering for the cause of Christ. That they are not to be dismayed, they are not to be disheartened, because God is sovereign over it all. Let me begin by reading, and we'll, we'll begin actually in verse 4 and read down to verse 10, but we'll, I'll desperately try to get through verses, all the way through verse 10 this morning. Uh, begin reading with me in verse 4, and we'll read to the, again to verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2. And coming to him is to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone." And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look back up with me, if you will, beginning in verse 6. Beginning in verse 6. And we're going to, as I mentioned, walk through this passage and, and highlight within here these two great truths that that the Holy Spirit who inspired Peter wants us to grasp and one of these readers to grasp so that we might better comprehend both our salvation and our situation in this world, namely God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Note how he begins there in verse 6, 
highlighting the sovereignty of God. He says, for it is contained in Scripture. For it is contained in Scripture. And we'll just take that statement alone at first. That for tells us, of course, that he is explaining something. He's giving a reason. He's grounding by explanation a statement that he has already made. Namely here, as he said in verses 4 through 5, which we've looked at, that Christ is one who has rege- was rejected by man, though choice and precious in the sight of God. But to those who are coming to him, they then become God's trophies, a holy priesthood, a spiritual, uh, spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices through Christ. And so he's highlighting these responses of the consequences of responding to Christ, namely blessing, a spiritual house, the consequences of rejecting him, and the fact that God is sovereign over both. And so he begins by grounding what he has just stated in the authority of Scripture. In the authority of Scripture. This reality of the stone's rejection by men is not an historical surprise or disappointment or frustration to God. And that's part of what he's establishing here. And he'll tell them later that they aren't to be surprised by this because they're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. He says that in chapter 4, verse 12. And here he's saying... Again, that there is no surprise that he is rejected by men. There's no surprise that what was precious to God was rejected by men, though you see him as glorious and wonderful, because Scripture has contained this. Scripture has pointed to this. It's revealed this. God revealed it in his written word, precisely what was going to happen. He revealed why it would happen, and he revealed what he was accomplishing and what he would accomplish through these happenings. In other words, the prophetic nature of Scripture, and maybe you don't, maybe you do uh, think of it this way, but when God gives a promise in Scripture, when God gives a prophetic word, when God says, I will do this, that is one of the strongest and most comprehensive and most profound statements of sovereignty that God could do. Only one who created the universe, who controls it, who has accounted for every contingency and rules over it and can promise that he will accomplish his purpose and that nothing happens outside of his purposes. And so all of that's contained here in Peter giving his opening explanation saying, and so it is with Christ, that these things that are happening that I've just explained are contained in Scripture. By putting it in Scripture, God declares His sovereignty over all of these events. And He also graciously provides men with the ability to discern God's purposes in them. And to heed His offer of grace and warning of judgment. And so nothing, nothing takes God by surprise. And remember, remember that, that this is being written, I've said this, but this is being written to a people who are suffering. To a people who are suffering, to a people who are scattered, to a people who don't have a solid home, to a people who aren't sure of the future. And God is encouraging them, and He's encouraging us by saying, God's in control of that. What's happening to you has happened to others. God foreordained it, God knows it, God is ruling over it, and it is exactly. The realities that were also observed in the life of Christ himself. In the life of Christ himself. 
So Peter is advancing his statement in verse 4 or 5 by committing everything that he's just said to the hand of God as an encouragement that God is sovereign over your suffering. God is sovereign over his promise to bring you your salvation, your hope at the end of the age. And yet, man is completely responsible. Man is completely responsible. Let's look at that part of it. And first, let's note that man's responsibility is shown not only in the call to believe, but in the response of belief and its consequence of hope, its consequence of salvation. Look what he says at the end of verse 6. What does he announce? What is contained in Scripture? He says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. The quote comes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. 28, 16. And in Isaiah chapter 28, God is writing to a people who are being primed for judgment. And he's writing in chapter 28 specifically confronting those who were walking in deception, those who were putting their trust, in this case, in Egypt and possibly Egypt's gods and denying their own God who called them out and entered into covenant with them. He says, beginning that section, therefore hear Isaiah 28 verse 14, therefore hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers who rule this people who are in Jerusalem because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol and we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by for we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. It is to those people then that the Lord responds with these words, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation. It's firmly placed and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. What is the stone in Isaiah's context that he's referring to? Well, there's been a bunch of explanations or suggestions and many of them are legitimate that he's referring to Zion he's referring to a believing remnant he's referring to God's faithfulness all of those have been different suggestions it's probably best captured in this way though that that the whole complex of ideas relating to the Lord's revelation and his faithfulness is the stone in other words what God is going to lay in Zion the tested reality is his own faithfulness to his promises his own faithfulness to his promises and so really what is happening here in Isaiah, is that God is laying before these people, this disobedient people, a choice. He's laying before them a choice. He's saying, are you going to trust in your own schemes? Are you going to trust in Egypt? Are you going to trust in Egypt's gods? Or are you going to trust in your God? Are you going to put your trust in other places? Or are you going to trust in the wisdom of God? Are you going to trust in man's wisdom or God's wisdom? Man's strength or God's strength? That's essentially the choice that he's laying before them and that he lays before us. The unrighteous and the unbelieving are arrogantly going to reject these purposes. They're going to put their trust in other places and they'll be swept away. He says in verse 17, 
right after the he who believes will not be disturbed. Verse 17, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hell will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled. Your pact with Sheol will not stand and so forth. In other words, you can put your hope and your trust somewhere else, but it it will not stand. It will be shown to be empty. But the righteous and the believing who respond in faith to God's work will not regret it. He says, he who believes in him will not be disturbed. Literally, will not be in haste. The believing will securely rest in God's working. They will securely rest in God's promise and will not be anxious nor made to regret their decision. Now, the Old New Testament overwhelmingly applies this stone, this reality, to Christ and to the preaching of the gospel. Let me just, by way of demonstrating that, show you just a couple of passages. Uh, Romans 9, chapter verse 33, it says this. And he's saying, why, again, this is his explanation of why is Israel stumbling? Why is Israel unbelieving as a whole and as a nation? And he says this in verse 31 or 32, actually, they stumble over the stumbling stone just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's from another passage. But here from Isaiah 28, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He's then after... uh, Declaring that in Christ is the righteousness of God and salvation. He says in chapter 10, verse 11, for scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. And so the point here simply is this. That the dividing line for all men is the person of Christ. Is the person of Christ. And the person of Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's faithfulness. All of God's righteousness. All of God's promises, all of God's declarations, and particularly His prophetic declarations, all of God's fulfillment of His covenant obligations that He laid upon Himself are fulfilled in Christ. And in Christ then, just as He did with His people, He has placed a dividing line for all men. He's laid down a choice, and essentially this is it, which is behind what Peter is saying here, is In whom will you trust? In whom will you trust? Will you trust man's fleeting wisdom or will you trust the wisdom of God and God's revelation? Will you trust in the wisdom of man, which he just previously said in verse 24, is like the flower of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word which was preached to you. This is the message which was preached to you. The message of Christ. The message of Christ. So, in pulling in this Old Testament prophetic word, pointing to Christ, it identifies that God has sovereignly made a choice. He has placed this choice before men, and it's to men to respond to this. To respond to this. Now, in Peter's use of Isaiah, notice one, one thing here. He says, and he who believes in him, he says at the end of verse 6, will not be disappointed. Uh, the, the ESV there has, uh, will, uh, about, has the word honor, excuse me, who has the word honor, excuse me, the verse 7. It says this precious value then is for you who believe. It should be this honor 
uh, is for you who believe. Because that idea, that word there translated as disappointment at the end of verse 6 is actually pulling from an Old Testament translation of the new, of the old, excuse me, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, some of you are familiar with the Septuagint, which uses a word that actually means to be ashamed, to be ashamed. You might have a little note in the margin of your Bible next to that word disappointed that says to be ashamed. And that's, that's really the language that he uses here. And so it might be better translated in this way. And he who believes in him will not be ashamed or will not be put to shame. And he uses the strongest language possible to say that uh, in Greek. It's no, definitely, cannot happen, most certainly will not be put to shame. Now, now why is that helpful? Why is that helpful to know? What is the point of that? What does he mean here? They will not be put to shame. One of the tools of the unrighteous is to heap shame on the righteous. They are, again, suffering persecution. If you're suffering persecution, if you're suffering ridicule, if you have consequences that come to you by the world who reject Christ, there is inherent in that rejection a kind of shame. A kind of shame. And the unrighteous want to advance their cause by heaping shame on those who would be identified with Christ. It was a powerful tool in that society. It's a powerful tool for us today to heap shame. That was actually part of the humiliation and part of the suffer or part of the humiliation that Christ endured. That was in the humiliation itself was a part of his suffering. When Christ was rejected, he wasn't merely ignored. He was, in fact, hated. And part of that hatred and rejection was that man, those leaders at the time, sought to heap on him the utmost shame. And that was part of his suffering. And that was part of his suffering. And again, this is important to understand because, again, as a theme that runs throughout Peter's message to us is that Christ is the example. He suffered for us, leaving for us an example. And so when Christ was rejected, he was rejected in the utmost possible shameful way, which was a part of his suffering. The plucking of the beard, the mocking, the crown of thorns, the nakedness on the cross. He didn't have a cloth wrapped around him. All were designed to produce the maximum amount of shame. And the shame and the rejection being experienced by those who are being persecuted is really felt. And so the encouragement here is this. The world might heap on you shame, but your faith is not to be shaken. Because the shame that the world tries to heap on you as they heaped on Christ is not consistent with reality. The reality is, is that in Christ is the glory of God and in Christ will the glory of God be manifested and you who belong to Christ will partake in that glory. Will partake in that glory. When God brings his judgment and when he brings his salvation, the glory of Christ will be truly seen and you will be revealed with him in glory. Await that day. He said that many times in verse 5 of chapter 1. Your waiting 
you're waiting in this time for a salvation ready to be revealed. In verse 13, you're waiting for grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're waiting for that time when God will be glorified in verse 12 of chapter 2 in the day of glorification. You're waiting for your promises and you will not be ashamed on that day. You will not be ashamed on that day if you have placed your hope in Christ. You will not be ashamed in the future and you need not be ashamed in the present. In the present. You need not be ashamed in the present. Matter of fact, he's going to say that in chapter 4, verse 16 of 1 Peter. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. See how reversed it is? It's totally backwards. The world would ridicule, but God says, that's where I've placed my glory. The world would reject, but God has said, you are my glory. And the one who has put your faith in Christ, the one who has put his faith or her faith in Christ, is to glory in that name. And so he says, this precious value then is for you who believe. And faith lays hold of Christ. It lays hold of the promises of God in Christ. And it endures the present shame because we have come to know the truth. We've come to know the truth. And this is actually consistent with the faith of all of God's people. Listen to what, just listen to Hebrews 11 of Moses. When he had grown up, he refused to be called the sons of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment, shame, with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So the faith that has always marked God's people who have cast their lot in with Christ, who have embraced Christ, and who have received Christ, has been to endure the rejection of the world, but to be compelled and to be strengthened, we are to be by the fact that it's a false shame that they try to heap on us. In fact, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the Jews looked at Christ and they saw a failed prophet. They saw a rebel. They saw, they saw someone to be rejected. They saw a man who was placed up on a cross, certainly not one that they saw to be the glorious Messiah, but in God's eyes, that's precisely what he was. And we who with eyes of faith see him, see that in the cross. We see that in the cross. And so it is the choice stone laid in Zion, which is precious in the sight of God. It is a precious cornerstone. It is the stone out of which God is shaping and building and forming his people, whom he's already identified as the new temple. And if you believe in him, you will not be disappointed. But the other side of it is, in verse 7, those who disbelieved the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone Verse 8, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. They are disobedient to the word. So the response of faith, which is the responsibility of all men, brings glory. It brings blessing. The response of disbelief brings destruction. 
You'll notice here that he's going to give two more quotes from the Old Testament. The first one, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, is taken from Isaiah chapter 8. Again, the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 8, interestingly, is sandwiched right in between two key prophetic prophecies of the Messiah. Both given in the context of King Ahaz, who was being confronted by God through the prophet Isaiah for his failure to put his trust in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and instead wanting to put his trust in another nation. And so, part of God confronting that unbelief in verse seven, in chapter 7, verse 14, is that God will give a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she'll call his name Emmanuel. In chapter 9, he expands on this one who's going to come and saying he is going to be the king who stands in the line of David, who is going to be the ultimate fulfillment. The child will be born to us, a son will be given. And ultimately, he will sit on the throne of David. He will have the kingdom of David. He will establish it. He will uphold it with justice and righteousness forever. Forever. And sandwiched in between these prophecies is this statement in verse 14 of chapter 8. He says, and again, confronting the rebellion and the, the rejection of God's ways, in verse 11, he says in verse, or verse, in verse 12, he says in verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread, and in verse 14, and then he, here speaking of Yahweh, shall become a sanctuary to both the house of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. God is accomplishing a work. It is a work that is displaying His glory, that is putting on display His justice and righteousness. But for some, and in fact for most of that nation, rather than being a means of salvation, it will be a means of their stumbling and rejection. In Psalm 118, this imagery is used once again. And he says in Psalm 118, just... You know the Old Testament reference here. He says in verse 22, actually beginning in verse 21, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone which the builders has rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Just as a little footnote here, That's a great refrigerator magnet. But he's not talking about like Tuesday of the week and Wednesday of the week and so forth. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad into it. Is this day that he just has mentioned and described in verse 22. And that day in which his stone is rejected. But that stone rejected by men has become the chief cornerstone. This day of God establishing His righteousness before all men and before those who reject. That is, that is the day. Now David is expressing this in the context of his gratitude for God for victory over his adversaries. It is a reminder that despite the rejection of the world against God's 
people, in this case, even the rejection that David experienced as the righteous king of Israel, that God was in control, and what is rejected by the nations, what is rejected by the unrighteousness, is, in fact, an establishment, the establishment of God's work and God's doing. And so here then, the prophetic stone, again, is this stone is identified with the ministry of Christ. We won't, for time's sake, read through all of these passages, but let me just give you one, or actually two. Jesus fully identified himself as this stone. He fully identified himself as this stone. Uh, In Matthew chapter 21, he says this, Matthew 21, 42. This is after the parable of the landowner who sent his servants and kept being rejected by those who were to care for the vineyard. Finally, he sent his son and they rejected him. This is a parable of Christ coming to Israel and the leaders rejecting him. And then he says in verse 42, Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it was marvelous in our eyes. It was marvelous in our eyes. We've read this uh, previously, but he repeats the same thing in Acts chapter 4, verse 11. This is actually Peter here, who is in a different context, making the same statement, talking about that you, the people of Israel, verse 10, you crucified this Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. God raised him from the dead. And he is the one who's performed the miracle that they just witnessed. And then he says, he, speaking of Christ, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. The stone, the stone which is the choice stone which God lays before all men, of which all men must either believe or reject, is, is God's means of salvation or God's means of judgment. For those who disbelieve, here he says, this stone, this precious stone, it became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus told his disciples that he was heading to the cross. He told his disciples that Rejection was going to be the end of his ministry. He told them he must go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the chief priests and the leaders, be handed over, be put to death, and that he would rise on the third day. And even his disciples had a hard time understanding that. Even his disciples had a hard time understanding that. Of course, you remember the famous or infamous scene with Peter rejecting this truth that Jesus just laid before him and Jesus rebukes him. You're setting your mind on man's interest and not on God's. You're not on God's interest. It is God's plan that he would be rejected. It is God's plan that he would be crucified. It is God's plan that he would be raised on the third day. And Christ was totally submitted to that plan. Indeed, for this reason, it is for this reason that he came. That he came. But those who should have loved him instead became his persecutors. The stone which the builders rejected, the builders, the ones who should have loved him, the ones who were entrusted with the word of God, had in fact rejected the living word. 
It was a stumbling and an offense. Why was it a stumbling and an offense? Why is it a stumbling and an offense to men, the grace of God, this cornerstone, this precious stone of God? Why is Christ such an offense to men? Well, it was an offense to them, one, because of the cross's ignobility, because of its shame, and because of its statement about the true nature of God's righteousness, about the true nature of God's righteousness. You see, for those who want to trust in their own wisdom or their own works or their own religion, a statement of the futility of our works is offensive. Those who want to hide behind a structure they have constructed for themselves of morality or religion or knowledge or whatever and think in that they are safe then to hear the message that that's worthless, to hear the message that your righteousness is a farce, is, is an offensive message. Is an offensive message. He says this in Romans 9, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not revi- arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but though, as though it were by works. He says later in chapter 10 verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. So if, if, if you or I or anyone has constructed some kind of spiritual reality wherein You are safe because of your works, because of your goodness, because of your religious activity. Well, then the message of Christ comes as a great affront. It comes as a great offense. And it's going to be a stumbling stone. And it's going to be a rock of offense, just as it was to the Jews and just as he is to men. If you consider yourself to be wise and if you take great refuge in knowledge and great refuge in understanding and learning and you reject that Christ is... In fact, the only true knowledge means to the true knowledge of God, then that's going to be an offense to you. It's going to be a means of ridicule and mockery. Try telling the gospel to famous scientists, to Bill Nye. It's laughable. It's laughable to them. And yet, they stumble over the fact that Christ himself is the fulfillment of the fullness of the knowledge of God. And in fact, knowledge cannot be truly had in its truest sense apart from Christ. This is exactly what Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians. Indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is a precious stone to those who want Him, to those who want to know God. But to those who have no interest in being obedient to God, those who have no interest of yielding and submitting themselves to God, then Christ is a stumbling stone. He's offensive. They are disobedient to the word. They were disobedient to the message. And the disobedience flows out of a heart that is already settled in hostility and rejection of the word of God. It's from a heart that's already settled in rejection from God's word. So he says, 
In John 8, he told these leaders, he says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? Why do you not understand what I'm saying? He says, it is because you cannot hear my words. You are of your father the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. He who is of God hears the words of God, but for this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. And so this precious revelation of Christ then to those who are already settled in their, their own rejection of the truth of God, he becomes a stumbling stone. And it's particularly sad, the identification here, the builders, the builders rejected. Those who had the most love or should have the most love for God's Messiah, in fact, are the ones who had the most hostility. And that's really the confusion and the heartbreak of it all. Imagine this, God was killed in the name of God by those who claim to be serving and to love God. Can you imagine that? God was killed in the name of God by those who profess to love him. Listen to John 16. Now he's speaking of the future here. He says, these things they will do. In other words, he says, they will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. To think that he is offering service to God. That God is pleased with what they're doing. And it's not limited to them. It's not limited to just to unbelieving Jews. It's certainly the case there, but it's not limited to them. I don't know about you, but I know that, I think I do know from some of you, that you would agree that some of the most, uh, some of the most uh, vehement rejection of the gospel or confrontation of sin comes from, not from unreligious people, but religious people, from professing Christians who live a disobedient life, not from unbelieving Gentiles. They'll, they're not as offended by that. They reject the whole thing, but those who have a facade of religion act vehemently against that. Be careful lest they turn and they tear you to pieces, Jesus said. So in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says this, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And you go, boy, that sure is the unbelieving world, isn't it? That's Romans 1, isn't it? That's that's the the, the Christ-rejecting world. But listen to what he says in verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, though they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. He's describing an apostate church. A church who is naming the name of Christ in form only, but is devoid of spiritual reality. Of, Of a church where only the ears being tickled is the desire. And among that group, among that group, even as these first century believers were experiencing and those early first Jewish believers experienced as Christ himself experienced, the most vehement hatred is going to come from those who claim to be the people of God, but they are not. 
but they are not. And so, so it is here, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But God is sovereign over that. God is sovereign over their response. They're responsible. God is sovereign. Look at the end of verse 8. And I'll just mention this point before the table. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom, they were also appointed. To this doom, they were also appointed. In other words, God is absolutely sovereign over this rejection. Now, here's the question. Uh, There's a little word, if you remember your English grammar, it's a relative pronoun, and it's, it stands in place of a noun. So the question is, what is it referring to? What it goes before that that it's referring to? Is God referring to what, what, to what were they appointed, the to which? To what were they appointed? Were they appointed to disbelief or that were they appointed to the consequence of, implied here, doom for their disobedience and for their unbelief? Is this double predestination to use a theological category. Is, did God determine that they would be unbelieving and that some would be disobedient and suffer the consequences? What does he mean here? Well, he simply means this. That God in his sovereignty determined to leave them to their rebellious hearts which he knew would reject Messiah. They were appointed to be the generation to whom the Messiah would come and who demonstrate, who would demonstrate disobedience to the word of God and suffer then the consequences. And in appointing them to the consequences of unbelief, disobedience to the word of truth and the judgment it would bring, God made a decision to pass them over. To pass them over from his saving Grace and to leave them to the consequences of their own sin. And so here's the, con- here's the conflict. Although it's God's decision to pass over, the unbelief and disobedience is fully and completely the responsibility of those who reject. And here is that mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. God sovereignly chose to send Christ with the offer of salvation to a people who would reject and whose rejection was sovereignly determined by God. And God sovereignly chose a people to whom he would reveal the glory of Christ and would grant them the full intent and accomplishment of his grace. But I want you to notice one thing here. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this and we're going to move into the table. That both fall under the sovereign hand of God both the belief and the rejection. And yet God works in these situations differently. He works in these situations differently. Both are the result of God's eternal purpose and the fruit of what he has determined. However, in those he appointed to doom, God's determination was to leave them to their own rebellion and their own hardness. What if God, willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience, Vessels of wrath to prepared for destruction. God determined to pass by, to leave over, to confirm in their wickedness those who have rejected the gospel. In another sense, God has determined and ordained to intervene in those in whom he would reveal the glory of Christ. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called. 
not from the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. God is the active agent in regeneration and in the gift of faith. He said that right at the beginning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God is the efficient cause and worker of regeneration. However, God is not the efficient cause of disbelief. That is what is inherent to man by nature. That's what we come into the world with is a heart of disbelief. God does not make a person disbelieve or commit the sin of disobedience. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Each is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So he is the active agent, the efficient cause of life and belief and obedience and disobedience and unbelief has no other place to look for the cause other than our own fallen and wicked hearts. Though God has determined it. And so there it is. Both are before us here. To this end, they were also appointed. And each is according to the sovereign purpose of God. And in each case, and don't miss this, this is a crucial fact. In each case, God does not act contrary to man's free will to choose according to desires. And in each case, God is just. In each case, He is sovereign. In other words, God leaves the unbelieving to choose according to their desires, which are enslaved to sin and dead in trespasses. And for the believing, God works in them to choose according to their own desires because He grants the gift of regeneration in life in which those desires are awakened to truth and to the glory of God in Christ. And out of that flows faith. Faith that must be exercised by the believing, but then is in that mysterious working of God also a gift of grace. So what can be said of this? And then we'll pick it up next week. What can be said of this? It's simply this, that if you seek God, you will find Him. If you believe in Christ, He will unfold to you the gates of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and fellowship with the Father. If you ask God for mercy, you will receive mercy. If you ask God for help in the time of need, God will give you help in the time of need. If you cry out to God in the burden of your own sin and disbelief and hardness of heart, God will hear and respond in tenderness and mercy. And if you reject him and you ignore his warnings and his promises, then you choose your own way, then you will perish forever. And the stone that God has laid down on which you must make a choice will be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So there's that sovereignty and responsibility. God lays down a stone. God lays down Christ. That is the choice that all have to make in terms of their response to Christ. And yet, God remains on His throne in both choices. He remains on His throne in both. And so those, though, who have received grace and believe, and this we'll look at next week, our response and our responsibility is to proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness 
into His marvelous light. The glory here is this, that God has brought salvation. He may be Christ rejected by the world. He may be the means of the world heaping shame upon the people of God, even as they did Christ. But He is precious to us, and He's precious to God. He is our hope, and He is the means of our salvation, and in Him we are not to be ashamed, but rather to glory in that name. To not be thrown off by the blindness of the world. To take courage that God is on His throne. And to take courage that He will bring us safely home to our heavenly abode, which is to be in His presence forever. And that is the encouragement. That is the encouragement. And as we come to the table this morning, we're coming to remember that precious stone. We're coming to remember this glory of God and His presence and His salvation as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We're coming to remember our faith in Him, that we are those who have cast our lot in with Christ, who have embraced Him, exchanged our life for His own, and desire and enjoy fellowship with Him, fellowship as a holy people, fellowship as those chosen by God, fellowship as those who have come to Him weary and broken and received grace, and to those who are hoping in our salvation to come in all of its fullness and glory. And so to that end, let's prepare our hearts as the men, as Kathleen will play and pray, as she plays. As Kathleen plays and the men will come forward and pass out uh, the elements, uh, be preparing your heart, worship Christ, examine your life, see where you stand with him. If you stand on his side in repentant faith or outside of his mercy. And come with a heart to worship. So uh, Kathleen will play in the middle of the